Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to be here with you all this morning. And as Marcus mentioned, there's a number of familiar faces here this morning. Welcome to those who are visiting. Good to have you here with us today. I want to start off with a story for the children. So children, I want you to listen up. And at the end of the service, there's going to be a five-question quiz for the children. And if you don't get at least an 80%, you're going to have to stay here until next Sunday. So I really want you to listen up. I'm not serious about that, but I do want you to listen. And I want the adults to listen in as well. Many years ago, there was a small town with a number of houses and a variety of people. There were old people young people, and lots and lots of children. In the middle of town, there was a park where all the children would come together most days and play regularly. On the outskirts of town, there were farms with fields and orchards. And from time to time, a farmer would come by into the park with his tractor and wagon and pick up children to work in his field or orchard for the day. And this was one such day. It was beautiful, warm fall day in the middle of apple picking season. So as usual, a farmer came driving into the park and stopped his tractor at 7 a.m. in the morning. And he said this, I'll give $30 for any child that comes and picks apples in my orchard for the day. $30? The children counted the cost. 30 was a pretty good wage for a day of picking apples, but it would be a hot day, and it would be a long day. And it was only 7 in the morning. In the end, several of them went. The remaining children continued to play. A few hours later, at 9 a.m., the same farmer came back again. By now, the park was teeming with children, playing on the slides, monkey bars, playgrounds, etc., Word had spread that the going rate for the day was a good rate, $30. So when the farmer told the children that he would pay whatever is right to whoever would come with him to pick apples for that day, they trusted that he would treat them well. And so a number of them joined the farmer. Again at noon and then again at 3 p.m., the farmer came by each time simply saying, I will pay you whatever is right if you come and help me in my orchard today. Well, it certainly won't be $30 anymore, thought the children, but some of them went to work anyway. At least we don't have to work all day long, and soon it will be cooling down as the sun sets. Finally, the farmer came back one last time in a desperate plea for more hands before the sunset at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Finding some children still playing, he asked, why have you been playing here all day? and not doing anything. Well, we haven't been hired by anyone, said the children. Come quickly, the farmer said, and work in my orchard. There is only one hour to work in the day, and I will pay you whatever makes sense. And so some more came with him. When 6 p.m. came, it was time to stop working. The farmer called his hired man over and told him to pay all of his workers, beginning with the ones that came at the end and ending with the ones that came first, and he instructed the amount to give each one. So the hired hand came to the ones that had come at 5 o'clock and had only worked for one hour, and he gave them $30. 
The ones who were hired first quickly began to do the math. If he paid $30 for one hour work, that's $30 an hour. I've been here since 7 this morning. 7 to 6 is 11 hours. And 11 times 30 is... 330. I almost caught on somebody there. Maybe I should have. Wow, I need to work for this farmer more often, they thought. But then... The hired man gave $30 to the ones who came at 3 o'clock. That's not so bad, though. $30 for three hours? Not too shabby. But then he gave the ones that came at noon $30. And the ones that came at 9 o'clock got $30. And then, to everyone's dismay, he gave $30 to the ones that came at 7 o'clock in the morning. At first, there was only disbelief and shock. Everyone knew that the ones that came at 7 in the morning and had worked hard all day long deserved more than the ones that came at 5 o'clock in the evening, just an hour before quitting time. Everyone knew that this must be the most unjust boss ever. That's not what? That's not fair, wailed the ones that came at 7 in the morning. Even the ones that came at 9 and at noon were starting to grumble. Unbelievable, they thought. Had we known this, we would have waited to come until 5 o'clock. The farmer, hearing the commotion, came over to the workers. Friends, he said, I'm not being unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for $30? At that time, you considered it to be a good wage. Now take your pay and go. I want to give the ones that I hired last the same amount as you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? This is the third sermon of three on the parable of the prodigal son. In the first sermon, we looked at the younger son who took his inheritance, left the safety and accountability of his father's house, and lived in rebellion and self-indulgence. We looked at the reality that the younger son followed the pattern that we see all throughout Scripture of what mankind tends to do, and that is see, covet, take, and then that results in disaster. The word prodigal means spending money or resources recklessly, wastefully extravagant. But the idea here is that any person listening to the parable that Jesus told should have recognized the younger son as themselves. And it was only when the younger son came to himself and repented that he could return and his life could change. In the second sermon, we looked at the love of the father. What is remarkable here is that the father could have, or maybe we should say should have, responded in anger and punishment when his son came home, but that's not the story. The father ran to his son, hugged him, kissed him, And even when the son finished mumbling something about becoming a hired servant, the father insists on throwing a party and giving his younger son the best clothes. The love that the father showed is so unexpected that even the prodigal son's older brother is thrown off guard. And that's what we're going to look at today. The older brother. Let's begin by looking at the parable itself. You can turn with me to Luke chapter 15.
And we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 32. And you can scan down through there and look over the story. Luke 15, 25 through 32. The older son had been working hard in the fields all day, just as he did yesterday, and the day before that, and the day before that, as he had really been doing for years. The story would seem to indicate that the older son is the model son, the type of son that every father would want. At least that's what it appears like. And as the older son nears the house, he hears music and dancing, and he pulls a servant aside to find out what this is all about. And the answer shocks him, just as it would shock you and just as it would shock me. Your brother has come home, the servant says, and they have killed the fatted calf for him. Now let's take a moment and think about what this means. The fatted calf in Bible times was a special animal that was stalled, grain-fed, and pampered to develop the most amazing meal possible, the most tasty meat possible. And so this animal was prepared months in advance of whatever special occasion it might be used for, so far ahead that they didn't even know what the special occasion was going to be in some cases. As we can see from this story, this was spur of the moment that they killed the fatted calf. The animal was prepared months in advance. And so, of course, the older brother was angry. And, of course, he refuses to go in. And who can blame him? Now, we see in this story that the father comes out and pleads with him, but the older brother will not be pleaded with. I believe his thought process, and we can look at this in chapter 15, Luke 15, verses 29 and 30. And I think his thought process goes something like this. Okay, Dad, let me get this straight. I've worked hard for you for years. Not only that, but I never broke any of your commands. I have done everything that you asked of me and everything that you could have wished for me to do. Your other son here, on the other hand, takes your money and goes out and squanders it on prostitutes, gambling, and the high life. Now, you would think that my good deeds would be rewarded and his bad deeds would be punished, but the opposite has happened. You never even gave me so much as a young goat that I might just enjoy a good and wholesome time with my friends. But the moment that your rebellious son comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him and treat him like royalty. That's not fair. That is not fair. And what is the father's response? We can see that in verses 31 and 32. Son, you are always with me. Everything that I have is yours. Celebrating is the only reasonable response, considering your brother was as good as dead and he's actually alive, and we thought that he was lost forever, and now he is found. Now, I want to guide our thoughts here this morning as we think about the older brother. Who is the older brother? Who does he represent? It seems most likely that Jesus' intent here was that the older brother represents the religious leaders of the time, the scribes, the Pharisees, the experts in the law. But I also believe that Jesus was referring to anyone with a religious heritage, a heritage of good works, following specific laws and customs, and of intense 
study of God's word. And that's what we see of these religious leaders in the New Testament. They had a heritage of good works, following specific laws and customs, and an intense study of God's word. But I want to be clear this morning that this heritage can produce good or bad results. For the older brother, it was good in the sense that he served his father faithfully for years. He did what his father said to do. But it can be also be a negative, depending on our attitude or depending on the older brother's attitude, and can result in isolating us from God's love, just like it threatened to isolate him from his father's love. And so, like anything else, it's ultimately important for us that we take what what has been given us with a proper perspective and the proper attitude. How do I respond to it? So I want to look this morning from the perspective of us as the older brother. I want you to put yourself in the older brother's position in this parable. And I want you to look at your neighbor as the older brother or your friend or people that go in the church down the street. I want to look at yourself as the older brother this morning. We have seen ourselves in the younger brother, and we have seen God in the loving father. But now I want us to see ourselves this morning as the older brother, because we are a group of religious people with a heritage of good works, following specific laws and customs, and a heritage of intense study of God's word. So what are some lessons that can be learned from the story of the older brother? There are many, but there's three in particular that I'd like to pick out this morning. Number one, God isn't fair. God isn't fair, but not in the way that you think. Number two, self-righteousness is just as wicked as sin itself, because it is sin. And number three, being the older brother in and of itself is not inherently bad or wrong. So we'll look at those three things this morning. First of all, God is not fair. Now let's look back at the parable of the vineyard workers. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. And this was the story that, the children's story that I first told comes from this uh, passage. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And you can look down through there and refresh yourself on this story. But before we pounce all over the workers that were hired in the morning and their response of it's not fair, how many of us, how many of you would sit idly by while your boss pays someone else 10 times what they are paying you for the same work? How many of you would just sit there and be like, that's great, I'm good with that? We would be upset. They got $30 an hour. I got $30 for 11 hours of work, less than $3 per hour. Now, none of us would consider running a business like the farmer did here in this passage. But I believe that's the point. The kingdom is not a business. The economics of the kingdom of heaven are different. And we are to look at them differently from the economics of the kingdom of this world. And so I believe that Jesus is saying something here about our perspective related to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. I think he's, I think he's suggesting a perspective shift from the way I'm used to thinking naturally. And I believe it goes something like this. 
comparing what I have received versus what my brothers and sisters have received and comparing the work that I have done versus the work that my brothers and sisters have done is the wrong perspective. As a matter of fact, it's not just an incorrect perspective, it's a harmful perspective. Rather, I believe that the perspective here is that we are to look at the kingdom through the lens of no matter what I do and how hard I work, I will never deserve what God has given me. Or something like this, I can't possibly outwork or outgive God. I will be paid way more than I deserve for the work that I do. And this perspective changes how we think. Now, the kingdom work that we do, the good works that we do, the things that we do for God become work that we do because we love God, not just to gain a specific reward. And we can do this because he first loved us and because we know that we can fully trust God that he will reward us for way more than what we are doing, way more than what we could ever do. And I believe that that perspective is consistent with Scripture. And there's a few verses that we could quickly look at that come to mind in thinking about this. Uh, I believe you're in Matthew 20. Turn back to Matthew 19. We'll look at verses 27 through 30. And, and the, the, back, the background here to this story, the backdrop to this story, Jesus was telling his disciples how difficult it's going to be for a rich man to enter heaven. Nearly impossible was kind of the, was the words that Jesus was using here. And then on the heels of that, Peter says, um, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. We've given everything up. So what are we going to have? What are we going to have? It's amazing here to look at Jesus' response. He did not get angry, at least not that we know of, with Peter's self-centered request. Instead, he completely blows Peter away with his response. He says this, Everyone that has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields, for for my name's sake, will get them back later. That's not what he said. No, he will receive a hundred times as much in addition to eternal life. Not even in the same category. Not nowhere close to the same amount. Peter, if you give up something, I believe Jesus is saying here, if you give up something to follow me, you'll get so much more than that in the end that you can't even understand it today. You can't even grasp it today. We could also look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul says it this way, Our current light of affliction, which is short in duration, works for us a glory that is eternal and far, outse- far exceeds the affliction itself. Our current light affliction, which is short in duration, works for us a glory that is eternal and far exceeds the affliction itself. Now, if it was me saying, all right, everyone, this light affliction that you're experiencing is no big deal. We have eternity to look forward to. You would have a right to get upset with me. You might say, but you've never experienced complete rejection. Or you might say, you don't know what it's like to lose a child, a young child. 
Or you might say, you have no idea what it's like to see your child reject everything that you taught them. Or you might say, you don't know what it's like to lose a friend in the prime of his life. And I would have to say, you know, you're right. I don't know what that's like. And so for me to say that your affliction is light would probably be the wrong choice of words. But it isn't me saying this. This is Paul. This is the Apostle Paul saying this. And he experienced rejection. He experienced torture, shipwreck, heretics, people that said that they liked him and then, and then figuratively stabbed him in the back. That's what he experienced. And to top it off, he chose the road of affliction. Because at any time, all he would have needed to say was that Jesus is not Lord, and he was not the Son of God, and he could go back to his life as a Pharisee, as a respected Pharisee, and a comfortable life indeed. So why didn't he do that? Why didn't he do that? And I think the answer is found right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, These troubles that I'm facing are light and momentary. Think about that word momentary. He should have at least said temporary, right? I mean, that would be more truthful, I would think. Temporary means for a time or for a season. But that's not what he said. He said momentary. It's like gone just like that. You experience it for a short time and then it's done. What a perspective on what he was going through in his lifetime. And then he went on to say that this is achieving something that is weightier and heavier and of more substance. And not only that, but it's eternal. Somehow Paul had developed the skill that every Christian should should develop, the perspective, the mindset that only God can help us develop, and that is being able to see the events that I'm experiencing now in the same way that I will see them when I'm looking back 30 years from now, and I realize that they were light and momentary. So back to the original statement. God is not fair, but not in the way that we think. Is that true? Is God really not fair? Of all beings, God, who knows all things, who can do all things, should have the ability to be completely fair. And we'll explore that in a little more detail later. So the first lesson that I believe we can learn is that God is not fair, but just not in the way that we think. The second lesson I believe we can learn is that self-righteousness is just as wicked as sin itself because it is sin. One of the things that we as religious people are tempted to do, I am tempted to do, and I know you well enough to know that you are also tempted to do, and that is to lift myself up and look down on others because of my good deeds and their bad deeds. And we can turn to Luke 18 which is where Marcus read from this morning, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, and look at the parable. This is the classic parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that explains how this works. Now, the Pharisee here was the good guy. He was the type of person that we would probably want to emulate. He was not a robber. He was not an evildoer. He was not an adulterer. He fasted twice per week. He tithed everything. And on the other hand, the tax collector, that is not a profession that you would choose for your son. 
These men were cozy with the heathen Romans, as Marcus explained, and their occupation was synonymous with greed and taking advantage of others for my self-benefit. So why was the rotten tax collector justified while the righteous Pharisee was not? Well, it's for the same reason that the younger son was justified while the older son was not. The Pharisee was proud and the tax collector was humble. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. So it doesn't matter what I've done? Yes, it matters, but it seems to matter even more where my heart is now, where their heart is now, where your heart is now. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God will not forcefully break the proud heart and coerce it into submission, but God can use the humble heart and point it in the way of life. And I believe, again, there's a subtle perspective shift that I need here in my own heart, in my own thought process, because subconsciously, I tend to place more value on the quantity of my good works than I do on simple repentance. And subconsciously, I tend to place more value on the quantity of my good works than I do on closeness with the Father. And if there's a strong lesson that I believe we can learn from the older son, from the story of the prodigal son, that I have missed before, I believe it's this. Our mountains of good works, aside from true repentance and true closeness with the Father, are worthless. Worthless. On the other hand, true repentance and closeness with the Father is the basis, the foundation for a life of good works that does have value, that is valuable in God's sight. So self-righteousness is sin. Number three, being the older brother in and of itself isn't bad. One of the things that we might think about here, if we picture ourselves as the older brother, one of my concerns is that we understand that that's not a negative thing necessarily in and of itself. Just like being the younger brother in that story isn't in and of itself inherently good. One thing that amazes me about Jesus' response to the proud and haughty scribes, Pharisees, and experts in the law is that he did not tell them to change their profession. He doesn't suggest that they need a lifestyle change to follow Jesus. Instead, he tells them, you need to change your priorities. You need to change what you're prioritizing. He talks about that in Matthew 23. And you can turn there. Matthew 23, we'll look at a few verses there. I'll just summarize it here briefly. Jesus said, you carefully tithe every minute thing. You strain at the gnat. You're clean on the outside and make sure that everything looks perfect. But you've missed the most important thing. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then he goes on and says something interesting. He says, you should continue to do what you're doing. You should count tithing as important. You should count straining out the gnat as important. You should count looking good on the outside as important. Those things are valuable, is what I'm, what I paraf- what I'm par- paraphrasing Jesus to say here. But if you've missed justice, mercy, and faithfulness, it's worthless. But it's valuable if you prioritize justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Don't miss 
the important stuff. And we can all think this morning of people that are more self-righteous or more religious than we are, and we just can't believe that they make such a big deal out of such and such and spend so much time and energy concerned about this and that. They are just like the religious leaders in the New Testament, we think. But let me break this down a bit for us this morning. Any of us, any of us, with a religious background will, by default, have pharisaical tendencies. We will tend to be like the Pharisees by default. It's just the way it is. You can't avoid it if you have a religious background. And the fact that right now, in your mind, you're perhaps comparing yourself with those more religious than you or less religious than you just further proves that point as we think about this. But now I want to make a couple of conclusions this morning as we think about the three lessons that I believe we can learn from this parable. And the first lesson is God is not fair but not in the way that you think. Why didn't the older brother, represented here by the scribes, Pharisees, and religious leaders, not want to accept the younger brother, the publicans and sinners? It's not fair. It is not fair. They worked their whole lives for God, and now this sinner who wasted himself comes at the last minute and gets the hero treatment. It is not fair. But to think like the religious leaders is is to think like this. It's to have this perspective. God is not big enough to reward me for what I have done. I demand that my reward for my work is public, that everyone knows what I have done and what I am doing. That's the thought process of the older brother here in this story. On the other hand, I think we need a perspective shift and think of it in this way. It is always worth doing the right thing. And what the father says here in this story strikes me. It's very simple what he says. He says, you are ever with me and all that I have is yours. You're with me all the time. All that I have is yours. And he says it in in such a way that the older brother should just think, you know what, that that should be enough. And I believe the, the reason that he says it that way is it should be enough. You are always with me, and whatever I have is yours. Getting away with as much as I can, or getting away with doing as little as possible to get by is not a Christ-like attitude. And so God is not fair. If we think of something or someone not being fair, it's generally in the context of, I've done something, and I deserve a reward for what I've done, and I'm not getting that full reward. And this person over here has done less, and they're getting a reward for it. But I want to turn that around a bit this morning. The fact that God is not fair is actually a benefit for us, a large benefit for us. Because if God was completely fair, he would not have mercy on us. He would not have sent his son to save us. And so we can be grateful and thankful this morning that God is not fair. 
because he has chosen to give us way more than what we could ever do, way more than what we could ever deserve. And for that reason, we can be thankful. Secondly, we said self-righteousness is just as wicked as sin itself because it is sin. Think through this this morning with me, how quickly this can happen. So when we read the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee and the publican, we could summarize the story like this. The Pharisee says, that tax collector is so vile and sinful. Thank God I'm nothing like him. And then, when I read the story, in my mind, I'm thinking, that Pharisee is so full of himself. Thank God I'm nothing like him. See how quickly that happened? How easy that is to do? How my natural response sucked me right into that same problem. Just like I failed to see the whole point of the story, and instead I used the Pharisee's failure to put him down and to put me up. And I committed the exact same sin in the process. Looking down on others and lifting myself up is of the devil. I don't think there's any two ways about it. Even if I'm doing it because of my supposed good deeds and their supposed bad deeds. The scribes and Pharisees would likely have been upset with how the father handled his son with love. But what they were missing is this. And I think this is critical. The older son failed to recognize that he was in the exact same position as the younger son. And that is, he needed the father's love and he needed repentance in the same way that the younger son did. They were both sinners before God, just as the tax collector and the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes are all sinners before God. And then thirdly, you are the older brother. But being the older brother is not in and of itself bad or negative. We don't know the ending to the story. The story abruptly stops, and we don't know what happened next. And I tend to assume that the older brother never repented, that he was always a bitter man. But I want us to remember the loving father gave the older brother every chance to repent, just as he had given the younger brother every chance to repent. And so, if we are the older brother this morning, let's face it and embrace it. Because that doesn't mean that we are beyond the reach of God's grace any more than the younger brother was. It does mean that we don't have to face the consequences of the sin that the younger brother does if we haven't sinned those sins ourselves. It also means, however, that you... And I and we will likely need to battle with pride more than the younger brother does. And we need to be aware of that. And so really at the end of the day, the older brother, the younger brother, all of us, it really comes down to a choice. And it's a personal choice. And it's a clear choice. And it's an important choice. You can look down on others and hold yourself up for what you have done. Or you can recognize and realize your tendency to pride and bitterness and recognize that we are no better than they are, than the younger brother. And we have the same opportunity to repent and to experience 
the loving Father's healing touch on our hearts, just in the same way as the younger brother did. Kneel with me for prayer.